When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Okay, we got a pretty stellar week lined up here. There's a couple of things I wanted to talk with you about before we get into it. First of all, so we're kind of keeping a pulse, or finger on the pulse, rather, of the award shows that are going on right now. Last weekend was the Critics' Choice Awards, and the thing that... I want to happen at the Oscars kind of happened there where everything everywhere all at once won best screenplay. He Kiki Kwan won the Kiki Kwan award. Um, Michelle Yeoh didn't win, but you know, she'll win the Oscar of course. Um, That's some <laughs> dreaming. Yeah. Uh, Daniel's one director. I don't know if I said that, but the, it also won best picture, which is all killer. Makes me super happy. Um, so just wanted to, Highlight that Oscar nominations come out this week on Tuesday. So hopefully hoping for some more good news there. But yeah, really loving this the sweep that's happening with everything everywhere right now. I mean, I just wish After Sun was winning, but I agree. I you know what? If Paul Miskell can come away with a an Oscar nomination on Tuesday, that'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. I don't think it's gonna happen, but it would be really cool. And if Charlotte Wells got like Maybe a writing at the very least. I don't think that's going to happen either. Like Sarah Polly is kind of the one who's getting the ah, we'll throw you a couple bones instead of Charlotte Wells. The thing that I'm really scared about is that I'm looking at a lot of people's predicted top 10 best picture nominations. And unless Women Talking gets in there and it's like very iffy right now, all of the movies were made by men. Well, then they might put that in there just so they don't look like stinky (laughs) poo-poos. Yeah. But I think they should because it's a good movie. Yes. Which we'll get to. Yeah. Um, second thing I want to touch on, which we were really hyping up last episode, was we watched the first episode of The Last of Us. Oh, my God. This show's going to be awesome. <laughs> second episode happens tonight. I'm all in. Super, super great. Um, just an update. <laughs> Probably important to talk about how we released our Star Wars episode. 
Yeah. So we're recording this on Sunday. Just so happens to be the same day that we dropped a daddy deep dive with our buddy Ashley about the original Star Wars trilogy. We went to see all three films, one after another, at our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, on New Year's Day, 2023. And we got together and deep dove on all things dad as it relates to a galaxy far, far away. And it was an excellent conversation. Personally, it's a conversation I've never heard about Star Wars. So if you're into Star Wars, or if you're just into these two little nuggets talking about movies, check out our Daddy Deep Dive on the OG Star Wars trilogy, which is wherever you find your podcasts. Okay. Which is wherever you're listening to this right now. Yeah. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Okay, let's get into it. We watched five smackaroonies, and they're real good smackaroonies this week. All of them? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. Let's get into it. So we're kicking off the week with, ooh, such a good one. We watched 2021's drama, Come On, Come On. It was directed and written by Mike Mills. It stars Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny, Woody Norman as Jesse, Gabby Hoffman as Viv, and Scoot McNary as Paul. Synopsis is when his sister asks him to look after her son, a radio journalist embarks on a cross-country trip with his energetic nephew to show him life away from Los Angeles. That whole synopsis just reeks of the kind of stuff we love, which is not a lot happens, but it hits you right in the heart. Okay. What did you think of Come On, Come On? So we've seen this before. Mm -hmm. Just once, I think. Yeah. I really like it. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like all of his movies and the little thing he did with The National. What I really like about this movie is how it shows the importance and power of relationships that aren't just romantic. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's the type of relationship we see in films so often is like a either an immediate family, so like a parent-child or like a partnership that's romantic, but this film looks at both the sibling relationship when you're older and no longer live in the same space and like an uncle nephew relationship. Mm-hmm. And both of those are f- quite relatable to me, but not things that I've seen depicted on film very in film very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially it was very, it felt very relevant because we've been doing a lot of talking about nibbling relationships lately. And this, I feel like this is like you said, kind of one of the best uh, versions of that kind of relationship. I've seen on screen. Well, it's a grounded real one. So we watched Megan last week, right? And that has an aunt who has to take care of her niece, but that's a very contrived thing. Whereas this is something more that could happen where it's like in a moment of complication, you need to take care of your nibbling unexpectedly for a longer amount of time than you thought, but you're not permanently living with them and becoming their parent. Yeah. You know, and so it's still very much that uncle nephew relationship. It's not like he's becoming his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, therefore, is much more grounded and relatable to me as someone who has nibblings. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, th- this movie is this movie is really special to me. Um, and I feel like I'm safe to say it's pretty special to both of us because we saw it and then we've since bought all the stuff for it from the A24 store. Yeah, but we're just big suckers who buy everything from the <laughs> A24 store. But uh, yeah, Mike Mills is one of my favorite writer-directors. I just feel 
like the stories he chooses to tell about humans just really resonate with me and have this really emotional core to them that I think is just really beautiful and really honest. And on top of that, I I feel like the way that he does capture humanity is just so affecting. And also on top of his storytelling, he does some of my favorite things aesthetically with his films. I mean, he is a graphic designer by trade, so he knows how to frame things to make them look really nice. And he knows how to do a really nice composition and everything is just really on point. What's really interesting to me, though, about this film is that he takes that aesthetic that he's had in his previous films, Beginners and 20th Century Women, and he adapts it to a new type of story. Um, So he still has those kind of still shots that kind of one after another, Mm -hmm. which he used in Beginners. But Beginners, although I love it, is very 2000s aesthetic. Yes. And this feels more grounded again because it's still shots of places um, and they linger. Mm-hmm. So they're not so rapid like they are in his other films. This feels like he um, was thinking about the, what he had done with I Am Easy to Find mm-hmm. and bringing kind of some of that into his narrative film. And it's cool to see him retain his style and yet continue to grow it at the same time. Yeah. Like he's a big fan of it of using a some sort of device within each of his films, whether it be like those quick kind of slideshow esque uh sequences. Or in this one, he uses and he uses it as a part of the narrative is that Johnny is interviewing these kids, young young people about what they think about the future or what they think of their life currently or the world currently. It's not just that that he uses, though, because he the other kind of unifying device throughout this film is the reading of story or the reading of writing. Mm -hmm. And then like the title and the author comes up on the screen when it's Mm -hmm. being read. Um, And that seems to be, although it's perhaps not the most obvious through line of the story, part of the key thematic of the film to me is like the power of stories. Yeah. And Jesse always says fiction and nonfiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we see him do that. We see him read like from a book about motherhood. We see him read a children's story. I think at one point he's reading philosophy, right? So all of these different kinds of writing become a way of framing the entire story. Mm-hmm. And then speaking to the power of story, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 super effective. And it, it's so funny because it is literally, in some cases, just an actor on screen reading their lines. Mm-hmm. But it's done so beautifully. So and it's just again, just so it feels so real of just, you know, Johnny sitting back in a chair just reading a book or just picking up a book he finds interesting. It uh there's a lot there's a lot that Mike Mills is able to pull out of his actors that just that feels so real feels so human and that's what pulls me into the stories like I've into his stories because I feel like the the acting in this movie is a slam dunk like I feel like Joaquin Phoenix the 
the chemistry Joaquin Phoenix has both between Woody Norman and Gabby Hoffman, who Gabby Hoffman is just an MVP. Mm-hmm. I, I love when she pops up and stuff. But I, I feel like there's just so much nuance and there's so much beauty that exists within these unique relationships and how they grow throughout the movie is a joy to watch unfold on the screen. It's also a film that speaks the most to my relationship with children. Mm -hmm. And so I could see how it might not for everyone, but as someone who isn't going to have children of my own and doesn't want to have children of my own, but does really like children, and I very much care about our nibblings and want to spend time with them and want to have relationships with them and worry about what will happen if I don't continue to work on developing those throughout their years and then all of a sudden expect them to want to have a relationship with me when I'm older. Mm -hmm. And that is a part of this story. Like at one point Viv says to Johnny, like he hasn't seen you in a year and a year's a long time for a nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, This is, yeah, the kind of connection that I have with my sister's kids. Mm -hmm. And like, fuck man, this movie really doesn't pull back how like children annoy you and test you and break your heart and make you laugh and help you live in the present, but also make you reflect really deeply. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that is, I think, particularly the power of children when you can give them back. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) yes, yeah. Um, Although I, I do think that is likely true regardless. And what's so interesting to me is I know that you really like Mike Mills um, and he's one of your favorite artists. I think part of that might be the graphic designer, graphic designer connection. Hmm. Um, But for me, I'm always really moved when I see someone creating art that is starting from a place of memoir or creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And Mike Mills does seem to kind of almost exclusively work in that. Like yeah. Beginners is uh, the starting point is his relationship with his dad. 20th Century Women, the starting point is the relationship with his mom. And my understanding is that this is very much an ode to his child. Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone who, I think I've spoken about this on the show before, but in my own creative work, I I can't do fiction. Mm-hmm. It always has to come from a starting point of like truth about my own life. Right. And then an understanding that truth is a muddied concept. And so what's true to me isn't necessarily singularly true. But to see somebody doing consistent work and not just like, okay, here's my one film about my life and then I have nothing else to say gives me hope that I have stories to tell that when I have time to tell them might mm-hmm. actually be meaningful yeah. and resonate with people even if it's my story. Yeah, you will. Well, that's sweet of you to say. Um, I, yeah, I I agree with what you said, and and just kind of jumping back, like I I also see myself and the relationship I have with our nibblings in this too. I, I I feel like the character of Johnny is a good representation of how I think I would dad if I were to dad. Like, so instead, it's how you uncle. Yeah, exactly. Did you know that there's a word for that? Avuncular. Like an uncle. Uh, avuncular? Avuncular. It means like an uncle. There you go. I learned that playing Balderdash <laughs> with my students the day before Christmas. That's incredible. So this is a very avuncular movie. Yes. Big time. <laughs> Add that to your vocabulary Rolodex. 
Um, the th- the th- another thing about this is, you know, I, I mentioned the device that he uses throughout the film of interviewing kids about the future and their lives and their feelings about things. And watching that happen and just seeing Joaquin Phoenix and his colleagues um, passion and drive to re- get these recordings and capture these moments in time and talk to these people. It just kind of made me think of what we're doing here and the fact that I always kind of go back to and take a step back and think about the fact that we're creating a record here every time we record an episode and it's something that we can remember and we can go back to um, and just look back (laughs) ideally fondly on these moments in time that we've captured. I mean, we've captured some pretty big ones since we started the show, such as moving and, you know, traveling to places we haven't traveled to before and going to film festivals and and doing that whole experience like it's very cool that we're going to have this and as long as we continue to do this we're capturing this record that we can return to and it this this film made me feel inspired mm. to continue doing it and proud that we are doing this so yeah it just just gave me that warm feeling in my chest of pride and also that kind of creative inspiration I think that's what Mike Mills does really well for me mm-hmm. is he gives you space after the words or after the images are, are in them to like sit with them because he's got this rhythm that allows for pauses where he lingers on these images or he lingers on the silence after a phrase or after a word where you can really roll that image or roll that word or sentence in your brain and think about what it means to you and let it like Mm -hmm. echo and reflect and take on particular meaning for you. And I love stories like that, that give me the space and time to take those images and those words in and really make them mine Mm -hmm. within the experience of viewing. Although I definitely know that isn't for everyone, Mm -hmm. but I really, there's something really, 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 special about this film to me and I cry every time I watch it and there's nothing particularly tangible about what is emotional about it yeah I think it's really personal and really specific and Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like yeah I feel like the the points and the beats that get us the most emotional could very easily just pass pass by a viewer they could pass me by too, depending on the day and time that I watch it. Yeah. Because we are not elevated human beings. <laughs> yes. We're not better than anybody else because we cry in this movie. Yeah. We're just big babies because we cry at everything. We do cry at everything. It's like, oh, we cried in this. Well, you cry on everything. That's what my mom would say. <laughs> yeah. What makes that special? <laughs> um, the last thing I want to touch on that makes this movie really special for me is the music. Um, it was composed by Bryson Aaron Desner, who are... Two parts of one of my favorite bands, The National, um, who Mike Mills also collaborated with uh, in making their previous album, I'm Easy to Find. And as Kylie mentioned, the short film that accompanied that album, Mike Mills directed that as well. And it's beautiful. Watched it last year on my birthday. Um, and it, it's so it's so lovely. But the music here is just so... It's so atmospheric and it's so affecting and... 
it it just hits that real sweet spot in my heart of the kind of things of the it's the kind of thing that makes my heart swell and can get me really emotional really easily but in like a melancholic way it's like yeah. this the the score in this film to me really evokes those moments of contemplation where you are facing the reality of the finiteness and yet an ephemerality of what it means to be human and yet the importance of what it means to be human being about those moments of connection and meaning. Yeah. Even within that very, very short span we have, like the music captures that feeling yeah. so well and how it's, you know, in this film, it's Johnny's time with Jesse that brings about those feelings of melancholy and contemplation and joy about the finiteness of being human. Yeah. That's a perfect description for the kind of soundtrack it is. It's really lovely, but like it can really get you in like a sadly reflective headspace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been listening to it nonstop this week, so recommend it. It's not the official Rad Rack, but check out the Come On, Come On soundtrack because it is, is really beautiful. Even just background music to, to throw on. It's lovely. But yeah, this is a this is a really important movie for me, and uh, I was so happy to revisit it, and we'll revisit it time and time again. I love it so much. How does it make you feel? I feel like this is going to be echoing a lot of what I just said, but it makes me feel beautifully sad about what it means to be human. That's really nice. Uh, it makes me feel all the feelings I love to feel. <laughs> the feelings are those. Uh, it makes me feel happy. I laugh a lot in this. It makes me feel sad. You love to feel sad. I love to feel sad. Yeah, me too. It makes me feel contemplative, which I love getting up in my own head. Yeah, it's great. Okay, Kylie, take us to the next one. Okay, this probably needs a little bit of context. So this past week was the anniversary of my dad's death, which is always a tricky thing because I never quite know how I'm going to feel. Of course, I'm going to feel sad, but some years hit me harder. Some years his birthday hit me hits me harder than the anniversary of his death. Some years both destroy me because um, this was year 11. It's been a lot of years. It's been a third of my life, which is awful and unreal to think about. Um. And so we had the anniversary of his death was it is January 17th, which was Tuesday. And on Monday, we went and saw After Sun again because um, Metro Cinema was doing two final encore showings. And I was just like, let's just press on that wound a little bit more <laughs> and go see that. So that seeing After Sun really felt like my this is the thing I'm doing to think about how I feel. Mm -hmm. Um but then I was like, I'm, okay, it happened to line up that my mystery pick was the, the day of the anniversary. And I started thinking about um, a film that my dad and I watched a lot together when I was young. And it's a film that I have not seen in probably 20 or more years. Mm. Yeah, like definitely since before I was 13. So a long, long time. But I used to watch it a lot with my dad and we really, really liked it. And it's about dads. <laughs> um, and you had never seen it. No. And I know because it's something I've mentioned a lot throughout, you know, decade plus of our relationship. 
And so I thought, now's a good time to show it to you. So we watched um, 1995's A Little Princess. You're either going to know this and have seen it or like maybe have never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the two. It's a drama family fantasy film. A Little Princess was directed by Alfonso Cuarón. It's written by Richard Lagravanese and Elizabeth Chandler, and it was based on a novel by Frances Hodgson Burnett. It stars um, a lot of people have been mentioned because later I want to talk about all the things that they have been in. <laughs> um, but the protagonist is played by Liesl Matthews, uh, and she plays Sarah Crew. Eleanor Bourne plays Miss Minchin. Liam Cunningham plays Captain Crew, the protagonist's father. Rusty Schwimmer plays Amelia Minchin. Vanessa Chester as Becky. Heather Deloche as Ermengarde, your favorite name. Ermengarde. And Rochelle Bella as Betsy. The synopsis for this film, if you've never heard of it, a young girl is relegated to servitude at a boarding school when her father goes missing and is presumed dead. I don't think you knew really anything about this movie. Not a thing. I uh, I only know the cover because I grew up looking at it in the video store. But I always kind of equated it to being like, that's a girl's movie. Well, I guess I'm proving that right. But interestingly, I don't think this was really something that we watched as a family. It was something that I really liked and my dad and I watched together. So it felt like the right film to revisit and think about him and think about particularly the the really strong bond that my dad and I had over movies. Um, after my parents separated and eventually I was like, I am sick of being forced to go and spend every second weekend with him. My dad and I kind of reached an agreement that we would just every Saturday or so, we would get together, just the two of us, and we would watch a movie. Um, This was when I was like 15, 16, 17. Um, And we would, very much like me and you, it's just that there was no mystery element to it. We would switch back and forth between who got to pick. So. Mm. I forced him through the oeuvre of Johnny Depp. Um, so we'd be watching like Blow one day and then he'd make me watch like The Exorcist the next day. Um, and sometimes it would take us multiple Saturdays to watch a movie because we would watch in the back room of his store and he'd have to pause every time a customer came in. Um, but really he and i from the time i was really young we really bonded over movies and so this felt like the right way to think about him and honor him so what'd you think of a little princess um yeah i was really i was really happy you shared it with me on the day that you did um yeah like i said i was not familiar with it i always kind of like my stupid binary little kid ass always kind of equated it to like Tuck Everlasting, which was another movie that girls always really, whenever I don't know that one, like girls always wanted to watch it at parties and stuff. They're like, oh my god, we gotta watch Tuck Everlasting. Maybe Tuck Everlasting's great. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Because I was just like, girls, girls, jeez. Um, and now you know life is way more complex than that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, but I found this really charming and nice. Um, did you think it was sad though? Because as a kid, I thought it was really sad and really dark. Yeah, I I think that watching this and thinking about it through a little kid lens, I can see how this would be like, oh, my God, there's no hope for anything. Because I was watching this when I was five, which is just a little bit older than our second oldest slash also second youngest niece. 
Mm-hmm. So thinking about her watching it at her age. Yeah, it's not all sunshine and lollipops. No, I remember like it, revisiting it, revisiting it now, having not been consistently watching it. I was a little bit surprised at how it isn't as dark or sad as I remembered and had blown it up to be in my mind. But that's because I was watching it when I was very young and this these would this would have been some of the first encounters I had with narratives that had an a layer of darkness mm-hmm. or a um a kind of loss like in this film. Yeah, I kind of feel like it sits in this similar kind of category as like Jumanji or even um oh man, what was the other one? Matilda. Yep. Yeah. 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 Like, I feel like it kind of sits tonally in a similar place. I think this is darker. I just had this (laughs) this realization. To me, this is kind of like V for Vendetta for kids. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, like that one scene in V for Vendetta. Yeah. yeah. For kids. Yeah, I get it. Was there? Did you feel a sense of pressure in watching this, knowing the history of it, on the day that we watched it? No. That's good. Not at all. Because there was. As much as I picked this film because my dad and I watched it a ton, we both loved it. Well, I don't know. I can't ask him. He's dead. But uh, <laughs> to my child mind, he loved it. Um, could have been that he was just humoring me and watching this movie that I liked. Hmm. But in watching it now, it's definitely got some issues. Yes. Um got some major white savior complex in it yeah it's got some major uplift the colonizer colonizers aren't problematic narrative Mm -hmm. some appropriative racism i want to say yeah like it's perhaps not something that in 1995 a white moviegoer who's fairly naive would see as racist but it's very appropriative yeah um, and it's very cringy just to see that now. Yeah. But I also see how a, a young version of me, like a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old version of me, was shaped by the messages in this. Even as watching them as an adult, I realized that they're really reductive, really oversimplified, and very clumsy. There are attempts at messages of like social justice in this. Yes. And, and some like really strong stuff about the power of friendship. And chosen yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chosen family, friendship, ideas of equality. Yeah. Um, like the bravery it takes to stand up to an oppressive system. Mm-hmm. Or like the agent of oppression. But of course, it, it is it is doesn't done in a very simplified and reductive way. But I can also see how like so much of what I came to care about and think about in the world, um, and continue to care about exploring through art in its various different mediums. There's like the seedlings of it in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think it's a cool thing to be able to acknowledge those seeds and yet also acknowledge where perhaps it's clumsy and oversimplified. Yeah. And, you know, all of that said, like I, I feel like this is at its core, it's a family movie. And it's just I can see why it's so easy easily to get wrapped up in this like a warm blanket. Like it is mm. just so easy for a kid to gravitate towards this and just to pick up the story and enjoy the fantastical elements, which perhaps maybe haven't aged that well, but it still wraps you up in the story. 
I mean, I got wrapped up in freaking Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and that is yeah. rife with problems, but it yeah. made it exciting and interesting because it's something that I don't know much about or cultures I don't really know much about. Yikes. <laughs> um, I like that you use that word warmth, though, because when I, you know, having not watched this in over 20 years, when I thought about the film, there's a real feeling, like a dual feeling when I would think about this film, which was, and, and I think it's the way that Brian directs it is the scenes with Sarah and her dad have a real warmth to them like the saturation and the um, lighting is very warm lighting and it feels like a blanket it feels like a fireplace on but then the darker parts of the film feel cold like chilled to the bone yeah like there's a lot of rain it's in an attic it's um, dark like there's literally a scene where Sarah is like sleeping on an attic floor with no blanket (laughs) and it's raining. And so I, yeah, those feelings of like, like weather based feelings, temperature based feelings Mm -hmm. are are very, um, that would have been what came to my mind when I thought of this. Do you know what I also kind of got shades of a little bit, just kind of tonally in the way the story unfolded was a little bit of the film, the fall. Yeah. 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 Like honestly, the fall is more problematic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oddly (laughs) enough, but I, I've kind of felt that the way we jumped to see like focus on the dad character for a bit yeah. and then jump back in, in some of like the stories that were being told by our, our main characters. It's, it's a really great story for kids. It's like really accessible, easy to pick up. And yeah, it does kind of wrap you up in that warm blanket. And like, admittedly I did take the piss out of some of the things that were happening. Me too. Not maliciously, but you did that to my dead dad. Yeah, that's I was just going for the disrespect on that day. I, I have to. Um, I have a story one, and there's going to be a story two later. But there's two nicknames that my dad had for me when I was a kid that he consistently used for me, the two most common nicknames he, he had for me. And the first one was Princess, which sounds really... Little Princess, which sounds really gross because it doesn't sound like it fits me at all. <laughs> like, I am not... If you know me... I, I feel like even if you've never met me and, and you just listened to the show, you could probably tell that like if Elliot, if you were to call me princess, I would throw up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was coming from this. And there's a, you know, a scene where Sarah talks about like what a princess is and who is a princess, which I actually do think is quite radical for what the film is doing. Yes. I like that. And like thinking about the other narratives about princesses and Disney princesses, like this feels like a subversion of the term princess. Mm-hmm. And like literally my dad called me that because of this film. And I really liked it. Like he would call me his little princess. And also the film is very much about a dad and a daughter. Um, and it was just even though my dad had two other daughters, <laughs> I was the one that he would call that. Um, and it just felt like this little code name that he and I had together based on this film that we really liked. But also it feels like the term princess in this film is kind of radicalized a little bit. That's what I mean, right? And so I think that's why some punk rock. (laughs) And even though at like five, six, seven, I wouldn't have been able to name that. Even at five, six, seven, I didn't like princesses. I didn't I've never been very femme, even as a child. Um, like I like Sailor Moon. Mm Mm-hmm. But she's kind of badass too and whiny as shit, which fits for me. <laughs> um, I really liked Sailor Mercury as well. 
But like that was the kind of stuff that I liked. And I liked Tim Burton films and I liked Lydia and I liked um, like Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. So, yeah, I do think that there was a reason that I was OK with my dad using that term in, as a term of endearment towards me and a nickname because it came from this film. He wasn't calling me that before we started watching this film. Mm. But there is a nickname that he turned to later on which is connected to something we watch later. So I'm not going to talk about it right now. But you'll return to it? I will return to okay, it. Okay, good. Um, I do want to quickly just mention that the cast in this haven't necessarily been in a lot of things, but many of them have been in very iconic things. So the act- actress who plays Ermengarde, Heather Deloche, she's the little bee in the No Rains music video. So great. Um, Vanessa Chester, who plays Becky, is the friend in Harriet the Spy mm-hmm. and Jeff Goldblum's daughter in The Lost World. Mm-hmm. Um, Rochelle Bella, who just plays one of the girls at the uh, boarding school, is Samara from the American version of The Ring. Incredible. And then the best thing is, I didn't tell you who had directed this. Yeah. And when that came up, what was your reaction? Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Like the guy that directed Roma? <laughs> yeah. Like Roma... What else did he do? He's a, he's a best best uh, director Academy Award winner. He did Harry Potter three, yeah, Roma, yeah, Gravity, and oh, cho- right. and Children of Men. Oh I, yeah, I I like Children of Men. Don't really remember if I like Gravity, and I do like Azkaban. Not I like that movie and that book. <laughs> not the prison. Hate not the, the prison. Hate the prison. And not the person who wrote the book at all. Um, <sighs> she will not be named. Yeah, garbage pee pee poo poo. But yeah, it's I mean. <laughs> This film perhaps has some things that don't age well, but I see how for 1995, me, there was a lot of things that felt radical. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably wouldn't have to someone who wasn't a little white girl in suburbia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I acknowledge that. It's going to be something we talk about again later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely wouldn't show this to our nibblings. Yeah. Like this isn't something that I'm like, oh my God, this was so good and I want to share it with them. I'm like... This is something that meant a lot to me. I'm glad you now know it. And I can tuck it away now, I think. Yeah. No, I like I said, I'm really grateful that you shared it with me and that we watched it. I know for sure that if I had watched this as a kid, I probably would have had a crush on the main, the lead girl. Uh, she's a cutie patootie. I think this was great. It, it had the classic 90s thing of like adults are just ding- dinguses and bozos. Yeah, Miss Minchin is very the Trunchbull. Yeah, I kind of love that though. I feel like that was a very '90s thing, especially in like advertisements and stuff. Of just like your parents stink; they don't want you to do anything. I mean, or, even ad- adults are poo-poo. Even Home Alone, right, is like that. Like there was this real '90s kids getting back at adults. Yeah, and I kind of miss that. And maybe that's why we're all little shits now. All those millennials are like, <laughs> respect your parents, talk no! about stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At any rate, that's where the um, that's where the bad dad comes in in our name. Yeah, is we're like double double Sh- birds. Shouldn't have showed us Matilda and Home Alone and stuff when we were kids. If you wanted us to just unquestioningly respect all adults, <laughs> even though we're now adults. Um, thank you for watching this with me on mm-hmm. what's always a sad hard day. Oops. You also uh, got me Olive Garden and cupcakes, and that was so. I don't care what well i mean you're welcome of course but i just want to take a quick second just to say don't shit on olive garden is pretty good 
That's where we went on our first date. No, that's where we went on our first anniversary. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> but that's, that's hey. We went to Eastside Mario's, not on our first date, but the first time we ever hung out. Also, our first night in New York when we took a big trip to New York City, we ate at the, the Olive big, Garden in yeah, Times Square. Big Apple, just, you know, so many food choices, so many world-renowned food choices. Where do we go? Olive Garden, Times Square. And then to the M&M store. Yeah. That's great. Okay, how did a little princess make you feel? Made me feel charmed. How you? Made me feel a very needed sense of nostalgia. That's nice. Okay. Let's go to the next one. So, went back to me for a mystery movie pick, and I chose the 2019 drama Western. Freaking strange Westerns. Uh, First Cow. It was directed by Kelly Reichardt, written by Jonathan Raymond. Well, he wrote the novel called The Half-Life, and then the screenplay was written by Kelly Reichardt. Uh, and it stars John Margaro as Cookie and Orion Lee as King Lou, as well as Dobby himself, Toby Jones, as Chief Factor. The synopsis is, a skilled cook has traveled west and joined a group of fur trappers in Oregon. Though he, finds, though he only finds true connection with a Chinese immigrant also seeking his fortune, Soon the two collaborate on a successful business venture. What did you think of First Cow? Okay, so I've been wanting to watch this for a long time. Me too. Oh, man. You and I had a bit of a tete-a-tete about who took this out from the library at one point. Maybe it's possible we both did. But at any rate, one or both of us has taken this out from the library and then we didn't get around to watching it. Fairly certain we talked about seeing it at metro when it was there in 2019 mm-hmm. and then didn't yeah um this was not at all what i thought it would be me neither because i actually didn't know anything about it i knew the poster which yeah. looks very hip yes like it looks very modern yes and i think there i think there's a part of me even though i knew it wasn't true that kind of um put there was that movie that came out recently and it's just like like a cow's life. <laughs> I don't know. Ah, uh, movie about a cow. Oh God. It's called Cow. It's just called Cow, and it's um, it's a do- documentary film that follows a dairy cow through her daily life. And see, I thought that maybe that that's what this would be. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's how little I knew about this. And it is not that at all. And Cow, that film. Like the director did Fish Tank, American Honey. Um, she's directed Transparent, Big Little Lies, like, and then she made this movie Cow. So I think like there is like a um alignment of types of work that that director and Kelly Reichardt have done. But I also have never seen a Kelly Reichardt film. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what to expect. So first of all, the plot was not at all what I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't know that it would be um the vibe that it is. Yeah. So in looking this up later, Kelly Reichardt's work is part of the movement of slow cinema. Uh, we do love some slow cinema. But this is slow cinema. Yeah. Like this takes nothing happens but the vibes to it. it but it doesn't even, this has a very clear plot. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. it is a slow movie. Like that is the way that, you know, inside and some other uh trouble every day are part of the like new french extremity movement this is part of what has been deemed the slow cinema movement uh molasses cinema if molasses you will. cinema 
Now we really like that. What I will say is the night that you picked this, I didn't know that that, was, that would be what this film was like. I also am not typically a Western or a period piece person. and It is both of those things. Mm-hmm. And I was a little sleepy. That's fair. And also, I mean, I asked you, I'm like, hey, is there a runtime that you'd be cool with? And you're like, let's try to stick as closely to 90 minutes as possible. I'm like, got it. This clock's in just over two hours. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said under two hours would be good. But um, so, yeah, I, I think it took me a while to get into it because it's slow and because I was sleepy um, under different conditions. I would have been hooked from the get-go. But that would be a caveat that I give to people who are maybe interested in watching this is like pick a day where you're able to really be attentive to the slow cinema. But once like Cookie and King Lou are together, I was hooked. Yeah, I was hooked. And at that point, I was really... And I had gotten a feel for the rhythm of the film and was like, okay, you got to sit up. (laughs) You got to try to not be sleepy. Um, what I will say is that character of Cookie just one of the best portrayals of kindness I've ever seen in fiction yeah if you want to see the word gentle encompassed in a human being that's Cookie also proves the, the point of um, or, or takes the side of the argument in Banshees of Inishirin that kindness is important. So take that, Colm Sonny Larry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, King Lou and Cookie's relationship. Again, knowing nothing going into this movie, it's at the heart of this movie, and it is such a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, from their very first meeting of each other, and then the way that that relationship and that kinship develops... It's so beautifully crafted and again, slow, but once it happens, like it's just one of the most beautiful depictions of male relationships I've, I've ever seen on film. And again, you know, going back to what I find really important in moving about Come On, Come On, which is this exploration of the power of relationships that aren't either family, parent, child, or romantic. Because there are so many other important and meaningful types of relationships that exist in our world, and yet those are trivialized and, you know, it creates a social environment where, like, they aren't prioritized when we don't see them reflected back. And this film shows the power of, like, platonic partnership. Mm-hmm. Um now, I saw lots of letterbox reviews that were like, oh, those two are totally like hooking up. And I'm like, you know, I think to not allow this to be like to to force romance into this mm-hmm. is, again, to be reductive about the types of relationship that can be powerful. Yeah. And friendship is one. And, and these are they're not just friends. They live together. They have a business together. Mm-hmm. They're in cahoots together and the power of that. And so I, I really appreciate this film for yeah exploring the relationship between two men who deeply love each other out of friendship, out of business partnership, out of making a life together. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be romantic. Yeah. And I think that is so important to see. Yeah. Are we to assume that every pair of same sex people in today's world that 
our roommates or maybe own a business together are gay <laughs> or in a relationship or in love with each other. No. So that doesn't exist now. I mean, I guess that's queer equality because they say that like men and women can't be friends. So now nobody can be friends. <laughs> nobody can be friends. Everybody wants to kiss each other. Uh, yes. I mean, that's true for me. <laughs> but I don't think that's true for everyone. I can't be friends with anyone. I want to kiss everyone. But <laughs> most people can be friends with someone without wanting to kiss them. I'm 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 not that's not true. I don't want to kiss everyone, but I do <laughs> want to kiss a lot of people. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but not everyone. Um not all my friends. Sorry, friends, if I made you feel weird there. <laughs> I want to kiss a lot of people. <laughs> all mescal. Let's <laughs> not do the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd be here for the next like five hours. <laughs> um I really loved on top of Cookie and King Lou's relationship, the th everything around it that heightened it, I loved. The aesthetic was great um, and just beautiful, very intimate looks at the landscapes and just the time that they're in. And because the aspect ratio was like the 4-3, everything felt very, it, it felt like tight and it felt very intimate. It felt intimate while also feeling you could feel the hardship of the time and the difficulty of living during this time. And I really love the score. I thought it was really beautiful. And then the man, I don't know why this got me so hard, but the beginning sets up the trajectory of the story. And you kind of know how the story is going to play out. But I got so wrapped up in the story that I forgot that setup. Mm -hmm. So when we kind of see what the beginning sets up play out, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God. And the tears just would not stop coming. I loved how this movie ended. Yes. Although this is the exact exact this is the exact type of ending. That when I show my students a film that ends in a similar way to this, like abruptly, mm -hmm. I have to say to them, okay, the movie's going to end abruptly. Please just sit with it. Please don't say what? Yeah, that's just, what I was going to say. That's the thing. What? <laughs> what was that? What was that? <laughs> Again, being reductive about my students. But I do But I do find when I set them up for that and I say, hey, just like a heads up, we're going to finish watching the movie today. It ends quite abruptly. I want you to just sit with that. I want you to reflect on why it ends that way. And I don't want you to immediately question it. Yeah. That they tend to appreciate the ending more. Um, and when I forget to do that, I get a lot of like, that was dumb. Yeah, what the heck even? <laughs> <laughs> and I think there'd be people that watch this movie and think that too. But man, I love an abrupt ending. I love a slice of life ending. I love a... But because of the opening scene... Man, I would love to get a still from the beginning and end of this film mm -hmm. and diptych them. Ah, uh, yeah. Framed in our house. Old diptych. Old diptych. <laughs> Classic. I, I agree. The ending uh, is one of my favorite endings um, because of just how it's set up. But it this film has stuck with me. I'm seriously, I gave it a four and a half out of five. I'm seriously considering bumping it up to a five. I really loved it. Something I wanted to ask you about, and I don't have an interpretation of this myself, but it seems like there's like a motif of boats in this movie. Like our opening shot is of a cargo ship. 
And then we have canoes and passerbys on boats and like trying to get boats throughout mm -hmm. it. I was just wondering, like, do you have any thoughts on that of what that could maybe mean? I don't right now, but if I rewatched it looking for that, I probably could. Yeah, like other than kind of the low hanging fruit of like it's traveling and it's change. Um, Some, it's it's finding a new place. Sometimes the obvious is what it is. That's okay. Yeah. It won't have to be more complicated than that. Um, I do want to talk about something that um, made this a bit of a frustrating watch, which is that in the opening credits, you were like, oh, Dobby. That's Dobby. Like when it was like the cast list. Mm. But I didn't know. Like, I know what Dobby looks like, but I don't know what the voice of Dobby looks like. So, like, every Britishy looking person who came on the screen, I'm like, is that Dobby? And you'd be like, no. And I'm like, is that Dobby? And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the actor who plays the voice of Dobby really doesn't come into the movie till like, over halfway through it. And then finally, you're like, that's Dobby. And I was like, this was the most frustrating <laughs> Bip, thing of my life. That's Dobby. And here's Dobby. <laughs> So like the Dobby of it all. Dobby's uh, home. <laughs> really? And then as soon as the actor who played Dobby came on, I'm like, oh, okay, I see it. I, see it. I get it. I get it. So this was like kind of irky the whole time. Yeah, like where the frick is Dobby? And he was high up in the cast list. So I'm like, where's Dobby? Dobby um, search 2023. <laughs> and eventually uh, I did find out, but it's just like you were holding this knowledge of like what Dobby looks like. <laughs> and I didn't know. And it, and like also just like you do <laughs> you process things really slowly. <laughs> like No. Yes. When the when a film is too loud or too quiet, it takes you like ten times as long to register that, pick up the remote, and change the volume as it would for me. Pros and cons. I process things way too fast to the point that I like make mistakes and we need a Goldilocks in here. Knee jerk as opposed to knee junk. Totally. <laughs> but I'm like, because I couldn't trust that you would A, remember that I wanted you to tell me who Dobby was and B, that you would even register and tell me before he was off screen. That's why I had to keep being like, is that Dobby? Is that Dobby? Is that Dobby? I'll, I'm sorry that I made you so preoccupied with where's Dobby. So maybe that's why this will be a 4.5 out of 5 for me because of the Dobby of it all. But I would like to rewatch it at some point when um, I'm less sleepy and I know what Dobby looks like. Because I because the the bookends of this film are just pure perfection. Some of my favorite like unifying framing of a film that yes. I've ever seen. Um, it's so beautiful. I really loved the central thematics of it. Um, and it really made me excited to check out the rest of what Kelly Reichert has made because I've, um, one of my colleagues has kind of repeatedly been like, have you seen a Reichert film? Have you seen a Reichert film? And now I have. Nice. Yeah. I really want to see Wendy and Lucy. I feel like that one will also. That us. one is like 90 minutes. So we should pick that one. Yeah. And this this film, I totally agree with you. The bookends are amazing. There's moments in this, and it's it's some of my favorite pieces of media. When when pieces of media do this, like when it's this very simple plot piece of plot or something that our characters are doing, 
And it's just so simple, but it gets you whooping and hollering Mm. out of cheering them on or being excited about it. I feel like that's really special. It also really made me want baked goods. Yes. Um, We also love barnyard animals. We love farm animals. It's true. And the cow, the... The uh, the titular first cow is beautiful. Oh, the coloring! It's like an Abyssinian cat. Gorge. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we really like the coloring of Abyssinian cats. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, also, like no cognitive dissonance for us because we don't eat cows, so yeah, we, so. we don't have to be like, oh, it's so cute. Oh, I eat those. Oh. We're just like, oh, those are so cute, and I love them, and I don't eat them. <laughs> and then, man, the way that Cookie talks to that cow, talk to me that way, Cookie. How does this make you feel? <laughs> you have a crush on Cookie. <laughs> I love Cookie. <laughs> but he's Leonard from the first season of Umbrella Academy. He's, Don't talk he's, about he's that. He's icky in that. Um, how did it make me feel, you asked? It made me feel a slow-building but long-lasting attachment to the characters. Mm, that's lovely. It made me feel warmly obliterated. Wow. <laughs> Your favorite. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. A lot of movies making me feel my favorite feelings this week. Um, Different kind of favorite feelings in the next one? Yes. Uh, okay. So next one, not a mystery movie pick. We were just kind of hidden night. We're like, we want to watch a movie. Neither of us particularly wanted to pick something. We just wanted something light and easy and fun. Well, so, we had talked about not watching a movie. And then I was like, I don't know what to do with my life if I'm not watching movies. Better watch a movie. <laughs> So we chose to watch the 1992 comedy Wayne's World, Wayne's World, Party Time, Excellent. Excellent. Woo, 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 woo. Um, it was directed by Penelope Spheris, written by uh, Mike Myers, Bonnie Turner, and Terry Turner. It stars Mike Myers as Wayne Campbell, Dana Carvey as Garth Algar, Rob Lowe as Benjamin, Tia Carrera as Cassandra, and Laura Flynn Boyle as Stacy. Synopsis. Two slacker friends try to promote their public access access cable show. Great. Easy. Peasy. I love that. Um, yeah. Let's get into it. What do you think of Wayne's World? So I saw Wayne's World for the first time not that many years ago. You showed it to me. I'd never seen it before. We I, watched I, it during the pandemic, even. Sounds sounds right. Uh I like I knew scenes from it. I'd seen scenes from it. I knew who they were, like the characters, but I had never seen the movie. I freaking loved it. It's no surprise I should have known because stoner humor is like my absolute favorite. Mm-hmm. You would classify this as stoner humor, right? Uh, yeah. And like any kind of pair of stonery guys, Bill and Ted, Jane Silent Bob. Yeah, I love all of them. Wayne and Garth. Like just like real simple, kind, airheady best friends. Yeah. But like Broad City too. Yeah. Right? Like it doesn't, it's not gender specific. Yeah. Um, I just friggin' love it. Um, so <laughs> I'm very thankful that you showed it to me and I um, really think this is like a fun, easy time. I'm kind of attracted to Wayne in it. <laughs> I did not know we were going there. Why? I think it's the black t-shirt tucked into the pants. Oh, you love that shit. I really do. And like, I, there's something I find so attractive about a stoner voice. Again, regardless of gender, like um, that Sonic 102.9. 
Oh, Lauren Hunter? Yeah, like her voice is so sexy to me. <laughs> so I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not attracted to Mike Myers, but I'm really attracted to Wayne. <laughs> I love that. I also like, I really, I think the, the biggest comp, comp how, how do I say this? I find it really um, endearing and I don't know what the right word is, but to be called babe, but like like a babe, like you're a babe. Yeah. As opposed to like you're sexy, which feels like gross and objectifying, but like you're a babe sounds, I don't know what it is. We say it a lot. Um, Basically our life, the frequent use of babe. We don't say like babelicious and stuff, but- But, but babely is definitely- Babely is something yeah. we say. Um, and Cassandra is a total babe. Schwing. <laughs> we don't say that. <laughs> but I love. But it is so funny. But that mo- like, there's nothing more pure than the moment that Wayne first sees Cassandra, and the first thing he says, "She's a babe." <laughs> yeah, that's like that's me. <laughs> that is that is me. <laughs> and those moments where Wayne's like. She will be mine. I feel like the what you would be like is just like, I will kiss her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of myself I see in Wayne. That's really beautiful. But I'm also attracted to him, so I don't know what that says. <laughs> I did not know that. I know. I like was feeling it. I was feeling feelings during the movie, but I thought I would withhold that and surprise you now. Because <laughs> the- he wears the same outfit the whole way through, and I just like... There's something about like a black, plain black or plain white t-shirt with jeans. Just does it for you. Yeah. Whenever you're wearing a plain black or plain white t-shirt, I'm like, you look really good today. Yeah. I'm like, this old thing is through this on. <laughs> oh, no big deal. <laughs> Schwing. Um, I'm, I'm curious too, because I feel like Wayne is really goofy and there's certain scenes in this movie where you're just like, oh my God, did you model the stuff that you think is funny after this stuff that he's doing? And like, probably, I've been watching this thing <laughs> since I was, it came, came out in 92. I was probably watching it around that time, like three or four years old watching this movie. And I watched it a ton. So for no doubt, I thought that was funny and then just brought that into who I am. That's just my personality. Well, I also love uh, talk to the camera, like break the fourth wall, talk to the camera. It's done so well in this. Yeah, this is like it's done well the way Ferris Bueller does it well, mm-hmm. but without obnoxiously overdoing it like Deadpool. Uh, yeah, it's that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. I feel like Wayne's World is kind of peak cleverness of breaking the fourth wall, whereas Deadpool is kind of, I don't know, it's trying to like push it over the limit a little bit. Like the whole, the whole. I'm not going to bow to any sponsor scene <laughs> is just that's brilliant. It's so good. It's really good. Um, yeah, I, this is one of my favorite comedies and the fact that it stood the test of time as well as it has. I mean, it's not perfect by any means. No, there's some, there's definitely some, some moments. And because the movie is so close to like holding up entirely, it's disappointing. It's just like, ah, and like when it doesn't. No, they're not the most egregious things. And Bill and Ted is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. And I showed you that. Mm-hmm. Bill and Ted has way more um, homophobia in it. 
Yeah. This has more micro racism in it. Um, yeah. It's so close. It's so close. It's the, it's, it's the exact same thing with Bill and Ted, where it's like, you guys are so freaking close to having this be just perfect. Yeah, it's not like a movie. Like one time we went to rewatch that 70s show and didn't even make it like 10 minutes into an episode before we were like, ooh, none of this is going to hold up. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, like it's it's not like I watched this and at the end I was like, we should never watch that again. Yeah. I was just like, oh, what a shame. There's a couple moments that make me feel a little gross. Yeah. But I mean, we've still, since the first time we watched it, we've watched it once a year. Because it's great. And it still makes me laugh. There's beats that still make me laugh so much harder now. Um, Here's a question for you, though. Yeah. Did you know that Mike Myers is like a jerk in real life? How so? People don't like him. people. He's really difficult to work with. Um, Here, I've got. I'm, I'm, I'm not really that surprised. No, but it is disappointing. Here is um, chunk of trivia. So the director, Penelope Spheris, um, said that Mike Myers was a nightmare to work with. She hated that bastard for years. That's a quote. <laughs> for example, he arrived on set one day to discover the snack table only had butter and not margarine for his bagel. He became enraged, flipped the table, stormed off set, and didn't come out of his trailer for hours. Man, what a baby. Because he has low blood sugar and he needed margarine. Um, she then assigned her daughter to be his assistant, and she told Entertainment Weekly, quote, Myers was emotionally needy and got more difficult as the shooting of Wayne's World went along. You should have heard him bitching when I was trying to do that Bohemian Rhapsody scene. He'd say, I can't move my neck like that. Why do we have to do this so many times? No one is going to laugh at that. To this day, I have an image of my daughter sitting on this little cooler looking at me like, Mom, I fucking hate you. Um, they've since reconciled. And she said, I, I really hate this. But she said in 2008, after seeing Austin Powers, that she was so impressed with Austin Powers that she thought, I forgive you, Mike. You can be moody. You can be a jerk. You can be things that others of us can't be because you're profoundly talented and I forgive you. Mm, I don't like that. I don't love that. But he's, um, I was reading, because like, then I Googled, is Mike Myers a jerk? And it was like, he's not getting work in Hollywood because he's like this. Like, it's a very, like, people don't want to work with him because mm. they don't have a tolerance for it. Um, so that's that's disappointing, because, especially because this is, like, his creation. And then I also read that, like, he was really shitty to Dana Carvey and, like, didn't want Garth to have much of a role. And at one point, like, Dana Carvey left the production and was like, if you don't let my character have more... I'm not doing this. And that he never wanted a, like, he wanted it to just be Wayne on SNL. And they were like, and Dana Carvey was a bigger, um, like a bigger actor at the time, mm -hmm. bigger comedian at the time. And he was really resentful of, or at least this is what I've read online, of having to like pair with him. So like, yeah, that's just. It's, so like, a couple things. That is really pee-pee poo-poo. And I remember when we watched it the first time, I think that you looked up the same stuff and told me about it. And I had since buried that <laughs> as to like not totally pop my Wayne's World yeah. being great bubble. Because this is true. I do this trivia and talking. People ask me a lot like, oh, so do you like do all this research and like watch so many movies for the show? And I'm like, no, we were doing this anyway. Yeah. I was like, after we finished a film going on Reddit, going on IMDb trivia anyway. So I often am reading this and I'm like, oh, I've read it before. But now I'm reading it, writing it down, speaking about it, and then I don't have to look at it ever again. Yeah. But it is, that is really disappointing. Do you know what it just made me think of while you were 
rattling that stuff off was it made me think of the character of Craig from being John Malkovich and just how mm, much mm-hmm. of a doink he is about his marionette shit. Mm-hmm. Like he's the it's this weird niche character actor, which is my, Mike Myers, who's so precious about his craft and his characters and his uh, all of the coming up with that stuff that I can see him just being like this really weird artist that is like, this is my art and you're not going to tell me how to do my art. But then the other kind of sad part of it is not that, that this excuses anything is that um, his dad was dying while he was making this. And he has since said, he said in an interview in 2013 that like looking back on it, the filming was a blur. And he said, I remember finishing the film and then I remember my dad dying. So like he was, Going through stuff, but that doesn't give you carte blanche to just act like an asshole. And it sounds like that's a pattern. It wasn't just in this film when his dad was in poor health. Um, yeah. Some funny things, though. <laughs> um, so if we have a completely popped your bubble about Wayne's World, maybe. I still love it. I just think what a shame that he's a bit of a jerk. Yeah. So uh, Stan Makita's Donuts mm-hmm. filmed in a Tim Hortons. Oh, no way. Eh? Yeah, no way. Um, Because it was supposed to be set in Ontario because Mike Myers is Canadian or was Canadian or born in Canada, whatever. Um, But then they were like, no, people won't want to watch a Canadian thing. So they filmed it in Ontario, but it's set in Chicago or whatever. So Stan Makita's Donuts is like a fictional donut shop named after a Chicago hockey player. Um, And Tim Hortons, like Tim Horton was a hockey player. So this kind of like a little was kind of cool. Was it filmed in a Tim Hortons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Stan Makita's Donuts was a Tim Hortons just done up to be something different. Pretty nice Tim Hortons. There's some nice Tim Hortons. They all got a very specific vibe now, which is like not my favorite aesthetic. But like thinking about the interior of this Stan Makita's, it was like very spacious. They might have moved shit out for the movie. I don't know. All right, cool. Can I tell you my favorite thing about watching Wayne's World this time? Huh. So we watch everything with subtitles. Whoever subtitled this oh, movie my on freaking fire. The subtitles on this, like particularly descriptions of sound. So good. Were poetic and beautiful. Yeah. We watched, we have it, we, we own it digitally through Apple. So I don't know if it's across the board, but for sure worth checking out. Yeah. They were like some of the best subtitles I've ever seen in my life. And like that's so. I feel like that is so smart and great to also infuse an extra level in comedy that doesn't overpower what's happening in the scene, but to bring humor into the subtitles for people who may be hard of hearing or not be able to hear the film or even not be able to see it. Cause if it has closed captioning, that is the, that has similar descriptions. You're still get you're you're heightening that, comedic experience yeah. for all your viewers like this captioning had um connotation to what it was saying and not just literal not just like drumming intensifies it would be like drumming slowly builds to the power of a arena drummer yeah. like and you're yeah. like whoa epic, epic drum solo <laughs> <laughs> ensues so great i really like that did you also know that tia carrera Carrera. Carrera um, did all of her own vocals. Yeah. That's I want, cool. I and her to outfits that. are so cool. She's so cool. So like, she, I mean, Wayne's not wrong. She is a babe. Oh, yeah. But like all of those freaking crucial taunt songs are so good. And the fact that she can wail is really impressive. Also, crucial taunt is an awesome 
'90s band name. Yeah, yeah. But I, I love the dynamic in in this too because she's like the lead singer, the bass player, but she is also the one hustling to get her band the money and to get them the gigs and the opportunities. And there's there's one moment it's always stuck with me. There's one moment when they finish performing, and she's just like, "Okay, guys." <laughs> take five and go hang out. And she just like hands her bass to one of her members who's ready to take the bass away from her. She's just like totally the boss of that band. Oh yeah. And which is, I think part of why Wayne finds her so babely. Like he, he has some issues later on, but I think he does appreciate and value her like independence and her assertiveness and her like talent. Mm -hmm. He's not jealous of that. He like thinks it's great. Yeah is cool it's very cool i mean the other female character who is not treated as well is laura flynn boyle yeah um i mean she is the impetus for some of my favorite lines you know in the movie bad about this what so i think it's once mike myers was already on snl he was dating someone and they broke up and then she tried to get back together with him by giving him a gun rack oh so because she thought it would be funny like she thought he'd think it was funny and he didn't like she knew it like it was it's supposed to be like an absurd gift. Yeah. Um, and when she saw this film, she was like, you're calling me a psycho hose beast. Like, mm. that's not cool, because, especially because that was like a particular. And he, I guess, apologized to her and said, like, this wasn't actually meant to be you. It's just that, you this know, is so bizarre. Yeah. And you take that incident and you're like, now inflate it, make it bigger. But I, I think it would be pretty painful to see that character who like they're, they're pretty crappy too. like it's very like Megan family guy um patty right. is that her name and how i met your mother just like mm. everybody hates her she's the butt of the joke and there is like a really heightened gross misogyny in that mm-hmm. like a bitches be crazy yeah, yeah um and then to know that was inspired by a real person is pretty hurtful but i do think it's good that he apologized to her and right. I, don't, I don't really know the full story around that or like if she feels better about it now or if she's just like this sucks i'd feel pretty crappy if it was me yeah so if you're able to get past all of that and still enjoy the film sorry everybody i think it's important to talk about the problems with the things that we like and still be able to like them i think that's important no cognitive dissonance here Mm. um the last thing I wanted to mention, and I put this in my letterbox review, is just how in awe I was of how many Metalhead crew members Wayne has found to produce his show. Dom DeLuise. <laughs> what? Dom DeLuise is in it. Who's he? Like, who is he in the film? Just one of the crew members? He's one of the people. And yeah, and he's like in the backseat during that like hurl. Like, if you're going to hurl, hurl. Or if you're going to spew, spew into this. Um do you know who Dom DeLuise is? Yeah, he's like, isn't he like a chef? No. No? <laughs> he's from 21 Chef Street. Like the original like TV show. He's not a chef. <laughs> why, did, <laughs> a... Why, why did I think he was a chef? Oh, wait. <laughs> Am I getting the name wrong? Give me a second. Give me a second. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, give me the original 21 Jump Street, not the... American actor, comedian, director, producer, chef, and author. Oh, Peter DeLuise. <laughs> His dad is Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise just sounds so much better. <laughs> Dom DeLuise is a killer name. Okay, so it's Peter DeLuise, Dom DeLuise's son. 
I was so like, damn, sorry, so Tom DeLuise is cooking up something good in this movie. But Tom DeLuise isn't a chef. Yeah, it says he's a chef amidst other oh, things. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But Peter DeLuise, <laughs> Tom DeLuise's son. Hell yeah. <laughs> DeLuise is here. DeLuise is everywhere. Wow. So sorry, everybody. That's excellent. Okay. <laughs> Party Wayne, time. Wayne's World. We gave you, we ran the gamut of the good to the ugly. And then back to the good. Well, how did it make you feel, Dom DeLuise? Well, Dom DeLuise, Wayne's World just makes me feel a ridiculously silly sense of fun. Yeah. It's just, we wanted to watch something easy. We wanted to watch something that would keep our attention when we were tired, that was a quick runtime, and that we knew we'd have a barrel of laughs with. And even though Mike Myers is pee-pee poo-poo, well... Enjoy it. Still, <laughs> I just realized I forgot to tell my second story. So, oh, now let's circle. Let's circle back. Uh, I mean, it's just my dad's second nickname for me was Mini Me, and it specifically came from Austin Powers. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's it. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so he like he he uh, alighted little princess in the late latter part of the nineties and started calling me Mini Me. But in like a Doctor Evil mini, like it, it wasn't, like it wasn't just like, oh, you're my mini me. It came from Austin Powers, just like Little Princess or Princess, which could come from anything. But it came from this movie. So both of my dad's nicknames for me were from movies, and one was from Austin Powers. Anyway, cool story, Dom DeLuise. Are you being mean to me about my dead dad? No, no, that's that's nice. I'm glad we, I'm glad you remembered, and that we were able to circle back. Sorry to interrupt the feelings to talk about a silly nickname. I just like don't know that we'll ever watch Austin Powers, so I thought now would be the time to say. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, th- this movie just made me feel excellent, um, but also reflective of the, of its downfalls. <laughs> I love it nonetheless. Nice, noise, noise, noise. Okay, we are going into something that is not party time excellent, but is. Very good. And so anticipated. Oh, my God. If you want emotional whiplash, do a double feature of Wayne's World and the 2022 drama Women Talking. It's directed by Sarah Polly, written by Sarah Polly and Miriam Taves, and based on the novel by Miriam Taves. You would not guess that's how you pronounce her name because it just spelled T-O-E-W-S, and I wish it was pronounced toes, um, but it's not. Give me them toes. I'm going to really list off a lot of people here because I think that they are all integral to the film. So some of the um, characters in the film, Rooney Mara plays Ona, Claire Foy plays Salome, Jesse Buckley plays Marich, Judith Ivy plays Agatha, Kate Hallett plays Ocha, Liv McNeils plays Nietzsche, Sheila McCarthy plays Greta, Michelle McLeod plays Majel, and Frances McDormand, who was in it shockingly little but is powerful in the scenes that she's in, plays Scarface Jans. It's a great name. Yeah. I'll start calling myself that. Um, synopsis. Sorry, I also want to mention Ben Wishaw. Oh, totally. As August. Totally just... <laughs> I was feminizing this. The, the, fem- feminism. These are women list. talking, but there is one man. There is one man. Uh, yeah, I did not put him on this list. Sorry, Ben Wishaw plays August? Yes. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that addition. The man... Naming the man. 
<laughs> All right, synopsis. The synopsis is weird. It kind of reads like a um, like a tagline. Yeah. But but this is the synopsis. Do nothing. Stay and fight or leave. In 2010, the women of an isolated religious community grapple with reconciling a brutal reality with their faith. It kind of starts with like a headline, tagline. It does. I mean, I do think it's it's really important to know if you're going to go into this film. And the, to me, this is not a spoiler. This is a film that is from beginning to end about the aftermath of sexual violence. Yes. And while it doesn't show any scenes of sexual violence, it does show the aftermath of that, both physically and um, emotionally and in and what it does to a group of people in a community. Um, and it's it's a really hard watch. So just it would be really awful for someone to not know that going into it because that could be such a um, difficult thing to encounter if you're not prepared for it or don't want to watch it. Mm-hmm. So Women Talking, we have been trying to watch since early December. It's supposed to come out this date. It's supposed to come out this date. Especially frustrating because Sarah Pauly and so much of the cast is Canadian. And then it's not even coming to theaters in Canada. Finally, 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 it came to one singular cineplex in the entire city that only has like 35 seats mm-hmm. or something like that. And we went. What did you think of women talking? Yeah, we waited so long, but I think it was worth the wait. This was incredibly compelling. And it hit so hard. It hit me particularly hard. I was crying through most of this movie. I was just a mess. And I think what is really notable and impressive about this is that it hits so hard because of all the characters. Yeah. I mean... Truly, this movie is mostly just women talking. Yeah, it is true to the title. Yeah. And as I was fl- reflecting back on it, I'm just, I love that. I love how literal the title is and how just direct the storytelling is. I mean, I like, I feel like notably the care, I mean, Rooney, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, finally Jesse Buckley. Finally, not in a dude bro movie. Yeah. Like these are all characters you can get behind and you can see where they're coming from. Like as they're weighing their options and talking them out and you can see the sway that happens within each of them for wanting to do nothing, stay and fight or leave. Mm-hmm. And you can see them weighing all of these options and the difficulty and the toll that it's taking on all of them. Um, some more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, They're just in different ways. Yeah. Like this really looks at how People can experience similar things and the way that they reckon with that can be so vastly different. Yes. Even when you have a very similar context. Yeah. Nearly identical context. Um, there's not a straightforward way to process, understand, or move forward mm-hmm. with trauma. Yeah. And I wanted to note because this is a name that I, you don't really hear associated with this movie um, or as a standout of this movie, but I feel like it was the standout for me, which was Sheila McCarthy as Greta. Oh my goodness. I thought, yeah, I agree. Also from Umbrella Academy. <laughs> That's right. So very strange that we watched two slow 
thoughtful movies this week directed by women with characters from Umbrella Academy season one of them. (laughs) (laughs) But she was, she was phenomenal in this. Yes. I just, she had a, she had a lot of really emotional, heavy lifting parts to, or or, uh, moments in this movie that I feel like that's the thing I keep returning to in my mind Mm. as when I think about this. Um, I feel like her, I guess you could call it kind of like flashback sequences are like some of the most brutal mm-hmm. and you can see her coping. You can see her coping with the grief and also just her, her story of how she's navigating living in the colony and her relationship with her daughter and her coming to her conclusion of where she, what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. In terms of stay and fight, uh, leave or do nothing. I just, I felt so drawn in by her. She's also, that character of Greta is such a great example of how we are never, it is never too late to reflect, take accountability, change, comp, like make our thoughts more complex. Like, because the other yeah. side of the coin is Frances McDormand's character. Yeah, they are. They are definitely foiled characters. Yeah. And then you've got um, the character of Agatha, which is kind of like that in between of the two. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, I don't. I, I was really. I do want to watch this again, mm-hmm. and I was particularly drawn to the way that by having these three families, just basically having a meeting mm-hmm. for pretty much the entirety of the film like this felt like it could have been a play big time um even the way that it's like structured mm-hmm. um felt like it could have been a play and i've never read a miriam taves book but i was looking a little bit up about this afterwards and i guess the book is written as meeting minutes like the whole book are, the, are meeting minutes oh interesting um so they're all from august's point of view which it has been a little <laughs> <laughs> interesting. People have had thoughts about that in the book. Um, but, oh, oh, but what I was, but I was really moved by is that by having these three families, they also have like the generation. So they've got the grandmother, mm-hmm. the mother, the children, mm-hmm. like in the same space. And they're kind of showing how those different points of life also impact the understanding of events in very different ways um because it was it was a lot of Greta and Agatha's lines that like really impacted me deeply yes and and Claire Foy's what's her character's name uh Salome just some of her stuff just freaking like a stone in my belly yeah each of the characters are so nuanced like you look at um Claire Foy as Salome and then you look at Jexie Buckley as Marish like they both have this this fear and this rage that exists in both of them but it's expressed so differently mm-hmm. um, and uniquely between the two of them and that's where I think it's incredible that they got the cast that they did because mm-hmm. they're able to just navigate those things and play off of each other and then Rooney Mara was like this this whole other standout where I feel like Rooney Mara smiles the most of anybody in this movie She's like this beam of light, even though in so many ways her situation is one of the most unthinkable. Mm -hmm. 
Also, she's like, Rennie Mara is so beautiful. <laughs> yes. I love that we're bookending with Joaquin Phoenix and Rennie Mara, who are together and just seem like this really lovely, awkward couple that makes amazing movies. I really do feel like, come on, come on, first cow and women talking have a, um, have some through lines. Yeah. And we kind of move, like they would make a great triple bill. Um, <laughs> yeah. With Wayne's World to just shake it up a little <laughs> bit. Um, so this, I, I said this to you today, I think, that when I was in my second year of university, uh, my first degree is a honors degree in gender studies. And I took a 400 level class, a fourth year class in my second year, which probably shouldn't have done, um, called Feminism and Sexual Assault. And I was a little bit out of my depth in terms of how heavy some of these courses could be. Mm. And so many of the people in them were in their final years or even in grad school. And that course was a really fundamental and important course to me, but it was a heavy, heavy, heavy course. Like the readings we did, the discussions we had um, felt necessary and, and so shaped my sense of empathy, my sense of justice, my worldview in really important and complex ways it was a lot of listening a lot of learning a lot of like learning how to deal with the reality of the heaviness of the world and this film felt like that course in a movie mm -hmm. um, although i want to be careful and mindful to say that like this is a very specific story and i don't think it's universal mm -hmm. it's about a group of white women in a highly religious context, it's a very particular story. And, you know, I think it's very easy to say that it speaks to me. Um, but I, I think it's important to remember that this is one story about grappling with the reality and heaviness of sexual violence and is very much focused on white women. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't know if you know this, it's based on a true story. Mm. Like, like quite literally a true story. Of for a number of years in Bolivia in a Mennonite community, a group of men in the community were using horse tranquilizers to knock women out, assault them, and then tell them that it was spirits and like it, like it very much came from this. And then Miriam Taves grew up in a Mennonite community in Man uh, Manitoba, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, and in her writing this book. She is speaking to a situation that is not hers, but from a context that she does recognize and that she has lived through. And so there's a spe specificity to, to this that comes from that. Also, Sarah Pauly, um, in her really, really, really brilliant book, uh, Run Towards the Danger, I really love that book, um, speaks to her own experiences with sexual violence. And I, I can see, having read that book and particularly that chapter, um, I can see her her personal story coming out in this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just I think it's important to recognize that while this was really powerful for us and heavy for us, and might be for most people, it would be really dangerous to call it universal. Yes, and really um, ignorant, I think, to call it universal. It is a particular story, and when we look at it in a particular specified way, I think it can. Um, enable really important conversations but I think that there's other stories that need to be brought into that if we want to have a fuller picture yeah I think that's really well put and really important uh, and I think that had I not had 
had you to give me that context, I think it was easy for me. And I feel like easy for a lot of moviegoers to over maybe overlook that fact. And just think like this is the narrative about sexual violence. But I think there's a lot of people who would see this and feel like this doesn't speak to their community or it doesn't speak to their experience. And I think it's really considering the the way that sexual violence is so often silenced, so often um, invisibilized. It's really important not to continue to invisibilize or silence differing experiences in different communities and contexts and personal histories by saying that, like, this is the definitive text on that. Yeah. Um, but it is one text in a specific context. Yes. I was really, though, moved by all the actors. They're just like, everyone is a powerhouse in this. Yeah. And like I said, like that is what makes this story so compelling. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to mention the singular man that's in this, mm-hmm. Ben Wishaw, who I think does an amazing job of playing a man who is literally there to shut the fuck up mm-hmm. and, and to learn that he needs to do that <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he plays such an important role, and I I love some of the interactions, particularly some of the interactions between him and Jesse Buckley's character. Um, but also just some of the tender moments that exist between him and Rooney Mara. But you can literally see throughout the film realizations happening within Ben Wishaw's character that I know the realizations I've had myself mm-hmm. and hard truths that you have to learn and come to acknowledge about the world that we live in. Even if you don't live in a colony like this one, similar things happen in in the world outside of that. I feel like you're also speaking specifically to um, your experience of learning those things as like a white cis man. Yes. Right? As And like, I think you learned a lot of those when I would speak to you about the readings and the realizations and conversations I was having in that course I took. Yeah, like I think that when you were going through that course and starting to speak to me about the things that you were learning and hearing about and covering in your course. Like as I start to kind of come to terms with and become more educated about this kind of thing happening in our world, it started making me, it started making me feel this sort of really deep. I don't know. It's almost shame for just being who I am as a cis white male in this world and the privilege that I know that I have being that kind of person and that someone can look at me in a certain context and be filled with fear or, or or feel hurt or feel some form of being triggered by just my presence. And that's what I felt throughout this film is just like, man, men fucking suck. The film does a really great job of exploring how, while that is true, um, and we would both acknowledge that. It's also the system and it's the culture and it's the, you know, like like Ben Wishaw's character does really stand in for that idea of like learning, unlearning, that kind of like the process of that. And I could so see myself in that character mm. because of that. Like it is really hard and really emotional. Um, and And again, like, this is the the whole thing. It's not about me, but like mm-hmm. this is just how 
I processed it and went through it and how hard it is coming to the realization that it's not all, it's not all good. Mm-hmm. And that we are people that look like me are a big problem. And that this happens all the time. Yeah. And I think I remember when I was going through that course, like just you and I having conversations that we had never had about like the constant fear I've had my entire life mm-hmm. of, of sexual violence. Right. And you're like, you didn't, you don't live through the, you don't move through the world in that way. And then of course I have my own process of unlearning to do to be like as a, as a white woman, I am so who grew up in suburbia, so privileged mm-hmm. and that a lot of those fears are so much less likely than for particularly trans people, trans women of color, um, you know, sex workers. Like there's just, I had my own process of unlearning to do and that course helped with that as as well. And, mm-hmm. and of course this film is not looking at that and that's why I think having multiple stories is important and not yeah. seeing this as the definitive story. I do want to talk about something I think is pretty important, which is that in Sarah Polly's book, Run Towards the Danger, she speaks about her experiences as a child actor. She um, was on a long-running Canadian um, Louisa May Alcott-inspired show called Road to Avonlea. And then she was also in a Terry Gilliam film when she was quite young, and she had some really awful, like, both particular experiences and also just, like, kind of... um, working in the industry experiences like just as a whole and really speaks to like I would never let my children be child actors but there are child actors in this mm-hmm. film and she's directing them so first of all um the character the actor who plays Atya who's the narrator Kate Hallett is from Sherwood Park oh no shit 18 years old wow yeah that's really cool that is really cool. That's crazy. So Sherwood Park is kind of a, um, if you're not from Alberta or the Edmonton area. Just a stone's throw away. Yeah, it's like a, Edmonton is kind of this like hub city with these smaller suburbs around it. And Sherwood Park is one of those. So she's from Sherwood Park. And then also um, the the woman who is like Frances McDormand's daughter. Yeah. She's from Edmonton. Oh, no way. So yeah, there's some some cool connections there. But there was a CBC article um, on Kate Hallett um, where she talked about how there was a therapist on set. Mm. So any any time that like the set was li- like live, I don't know what the right word is. There was a therapist there, um, and she to- like Hallett told CBC Arts that she quote always felt supported and encouraged while navigating the heavy subject matter, and would regularly visit with a the therapist who was available for casting. And crew on set. And she said, quote, I don't think we would have been able to give the product that we did without that sort of protection. And I think like her speaking to like that Sarah Polly was a protective force. It's really great to hear that like she is also practicing Mm -hmm. what she spoke about in her book. Another thing that I looked into afterwards is there's a character who. Can can we just pause on that? Because I I just really I really love that. I love the integration of more support on sets for different kinds of films. Like I like lo- intimacy coordinators. Exactly. That's and what I was not say. just for sex scenes. Yeah. Like intimacy coordinators when you have an adult working with a child in any context where they're going to be having physical contact. Yeah. Like I just 
that level of thoughtfulness and care that is going into not only helping and supporting actors, but also giving them more of an ease when they head into into performing their roles or be, just being on set generally. I wish I had that much support in many of the jobs that I've had in the past. Yeah, this sounds like Women Talking was not the set of Wayne's World. There was no <laughs> flipping tables because there was butter instead of margarine. Because <laughs> there's only one dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, definitely even the like cast and crew seemed very women-centered. So this was the other thing that I was really... Um, happy to see is there's a character in the film who is trans Mm -hmm. i would say um and the actor who plays that character is non-binary okay so that's thumbs up good and there's a character in the film who is blind and that actor is blind Mm -hmm. like that wasn't um contact lenses and Mm -hmm. so i'm you know happy I, i think it's so important to have diversity in the actors and have that those just be those diverse actors just be characters in film and they don't have that doesn't have to be the central part of the film yeah and just because there was a couple of moments with the um the non-binary trans character that were really really impactful and powerful yeah and i think it would have done a real disservice to the power of that to have, have a cis actor playing that role particularly with just the way that Sarah Polly has presented herself in her writing and in her personal life, um, that would have felt really disingenuous to me. Yeah. No. So I, I was really grateful to see that. Yeah. You know, just as you were talking and I'm just kind of thinking more about the film and reflecting on it a little bit more, it's it's crafted so expertly that like you said, we don't actually see any of the assaults happen. Um, and we don't re- we don't really see any of the men but you feel just how imposing the the men are, even though they're not present. And there's a way that this film, and again, I'm speaking from my very privileged position as a white woman who has grown up in suburbia. Um, this film felt allegorical to me. Mm. Like it felt like what they were talking about in their specific context of their colony is a microcosm for conversations that we could broaden out to be about Canada. Yeah. Again, not a universal allegory. I don't think that's true. But for a particular cultural experience, I think could be allegorical to that. And I I really I was really moved by that, even though it was really heavy. Yeah. Um what did you think of the color grading? I've heard that a lot of people don't like it. Yeah, but that's why I'm asking what you think of it. It didn't bother me. So Sarah Polly said she um, filmed it in that way because she wanted it to evoke a sense of the past, even in the present. Okay. I mean, yeah, mission accomplished, I think. I mean, there is a way that that color grading creates a... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? like a feeling of somber, serious, solemn. Making this too vibrant and flashy would be doing a disservice to the subject matter. Yeah. Like it evokes, like the color grading evokes the subject matter of the film. Yeah, it it feels cold and isolated and stuck in fear. Whereas if you look at like First Cow, it's like warm. 
and mm-hmm. kind of inviting. Yeah, I, I, I honestly thought the color grading and the tone was, I, I felt like it was perfect. Like it suited the film wonderfully. But I have seen some people up in arms about it on the internet. It's like chill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it didn't it didn't bother me either, and it felt it felt intentional. And that's the thing about intentional, purposeful things. Some people are going to agree with that purpose and intention and some people aren't yeah. right and that's that's what i love about art is when you do something with purpose and intention it probably should be divisive yeah there's going to be people who it works for and people who it doesn't and that's why we have so many films and so much literature and so much arts so that you can find the stuff that speaks to you yeah um last thing that was just the button for making this just a really beautifully crafted film was the uh the beautiful and affecting score from Hildur Gwenedotter. Uh She also did the score for another one of her favorite films that we recently saw, which is Tar. Uh, and she won an Oscar in the past for her work on the, the movie Joker. I can just hear my mom being like, you have so many favorite films. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we do. Um, but the score here was was beautiful and really just complimented everything that's going on within the scenes and the, what the actors are doing with the characters and um, when we're, when we're living in certain kind of moments uh, it would, it could build tension. It could relieve that tension really well done. This was a very affecting experience. Agreed. You, um, I did, I, I definitely did cry as I, as I tend to do, but you and uh, we went and saw this with our good buddy, Ashley, who is in our star Wars deep dive, which came out. Um, earlier in the week. Highly recommend you listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the two of you were waterworks on either side of me. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I cried, but it was um, a very silent, slow cry and, and kind of not not consistent. You two were uh, sniffling the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chalk that up to the fact that I, I think I did a lot of that consistent crying when i took my feminism and sexual assault course yeah <laughs> i but it is yeah it is a very affecting film i i remember when i went to design school we had to take one non-art course we were required to and i took sociology and i remember i walked in on the first day and the instructor was uh, i think he was an ex cop or he worked in he worked for the police in some capacity as maybe like some sort of like psychologist or something. I can't fully remember, but I remember he walked in and the first thing he said was for all of the women in the room, the most dangerous thing that you can do in your life is enter a relationship with a man. And from that moment, I was just like, this guy fucking gets it. Wow, you're really all about the men heroes today, eh? <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite part of women talking? The men. The men. <laughs> I think it's just because I think it's just because of the thing that I already said of I I can see the processing that Ben Wish I was doing throughout the film and I've done that same processing. Well, so I, I I can relate to that. I like to take the piss out of you a little bit because it's fun. Um but I do think it's important, and the film speaks to this, about men doing the work of speaking to other men about this. Mm-hmm. Um, the work of, I think his name is Jackson Katz. 
Um, he did that. Um, like, uh, oh no, <laughs> God. <laughs> You're thinking of like Jackson Galaxy? Yeah, I think his name is Jackson Katz. He he um yeah he did the film Man Enough. We watched it. Where is that Man Enough? He um we watched something that he he did. He's a like a sociologist. Tough guys. Oh yeah. It's it's called Men, Violence, and the Crisis in Masculinity, and he does a lot of um, educational speaking as a man to other men about these things because it shouldn't always be on women, trans and non-binary folk to be the people educating cis men on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is important that your professor said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also is really important that Sarah Polly made this film. So anyway. Important all around. Important all around. We all got to learn stuff. Oh, learning is hard, but important. How did women talking make you feel? Beautifully and brutally heartbroken. It made me feel an important and difficult heaviness. Yeah. Whew. This one's going to stick with me. I definitely want to watch it again. It's not something I'm going to watch very consistently. Yeah. It's a heavy, it's it's a heavy, really heavy. Yeah. Um, but I, it is something I want to revisit. It's important. If it, if it's even remotely close to where you are and you have the means, recommend checking it out. Yeah. Okay. We've come out the other side. Let's, Let's talk, talk about some dads. dads of the week. Bad dads. Um, okay. Who is your nominee for bad dad of the week? I'm nominating Rob Lowe's character of Benjamin Oliver. That's a good one. I I had a little bit of difficulty choosing, but I did not go with him. Why why did you choose Benjamin? Well, he's manipulative. Mm-hmm. So his intentions are not honest. Mm-hmm. He's motivated by money and possession. Like even like the possession of women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's sexist. Yeah. He's a grifter, essentially. Like a one percenter <laughs> yeah. grifter. He's not quite a one percenter, but like that energy. Capitalist grifter. Yeah, yeah. Um he's just a douche. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are my reasons. That's good. I went with Miss Minchin from A Little Princess. But I I picked Miss Minchin because something that really stuck with me, she resents what she does for a living. And it's like, then why are you doing it? You're 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 such a for do- the money. But like such a nasty doink, selfish, and just there's this inherent cruelty that exists inside of her that you just don't you never want in a dad or any parent of any kind. Um yeah. So where are we at? <laughs> <laughs> well, I picked Benjamin. You picked Ms. Benjamin. Who do you think's better? I think Benjamin. I think Miss Minchin is such a caricature. Whereas there are so many men like Benjamin out there. And they and they become dads. Yeah. And, and it's more insidious, the um badness of their dadness. Yeah. And I feel like we so recently did the trench bowl. Did the trunch bowl, <laughs> which is Miss Minchin 2.0, or like Miss Minchin is Trunchbull 2.0. Yeah. Cause like, I feel like you could say the same thing there. Like, she, she hates everything she does in her job, but she likes punishing kids. She likes the power. Yeah. 
Yeah. Whereas Miss Minchin is a little bit more driven by money. Like, I don't think she gets off on punishing the kids. No, she'd rather they just be easy to deal with. Yeah. She's got no chokey. Yeah. She ain't got no chokey. Does have an attic, though. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, Benjamin was kind of where my head went first when I was trying to pick a dad. So let's do it. Benjamin. Don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Um, Rad dad. I picked Johnny from Come On, Come On. I picked Liv from Come On, Come On. That's That was also my second choice. Um, I picked Johnny because he's just figuring it out and he knows he's not perfect when it comes to being a role model and being an uncle. Um, but you can see that he he cares and that he loves his nephew. He's reflective on the things that he says or does. He's open to learn and improve and he's not afraid to lean on others to help him do that or ask others to help him do that. Um, and I, like I said before, I feel like he's not dissimilar to how I would dad. And So this is a um, egotistical rad dad. Because yeah. you're like, this is if I was a dad. Yeah. like, But in, in all the ways that I just said that I would, there's no way in hell I would be perfect. I wouldn't be awesome. But I would try. So this is why I think it's important to give this to Liv instead of Johnny. Is that Liv even parents Johnny? And in her parenting, she's patient. She's honest always. She's loving, but she doesn't coddle in her son and her brother. She's an advocate, advocate for her own needs and the needs of others. She's willing to teach. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I could go on. Yeah. She's also just figuring it out. Yeah. And for as little as she's on screen, like she's not on screen as much as Joaquin Phoenix is or Johnny is. Um, all those scenes are just, they resonate very deeply with me. And like I said, she was my very close runner up. So I'm more than happy to give it to Viv. Also Gabby Hoffman. Oh, Viv? Is it Viv? I keep calling her Liv. Oops. It is Viv. I just don't know why I put Liv. That's okay. We all make mistakes and we... Learn. <laughs> That's right. All right. Viv from Come On, Come On. Be, Be our your dad. dad. You want to hit us with a rad wreck? I do. So I think if you've made it all the way through this... Um, thank you for listening to us. Um, I think it's clear how important and resonant we found women talking. But as I spoke about then, I think it's really important to also look at the work being done um, by people of color around the topic of sexual violence. And there's a lot out there, but in keeping it movie TV focused for what we tend to talk about. I want to recommend the miniseries, HBO miniseries. Yes. I May Destroy You. Um, it was created by Michaela Cole. And it is one of the most impactful, important pieces of art I have ever seen. It's also incredibly heavy. It's really tough. Um, but it's really, really important. Mm. And if you're more of a reader... Interesting that you listen to this show, um, but also <laughs> totally cool. We'll uh, take it all. Um, Michaela Cole also wrote a 
um, it was a speech that then she published called, I believe, it's called Misfits, A Personal Manifesto. Um, and it's really impactful as well. Um, so both of those things I would strongly recommend. Also would be really interested to hear from other folks about um, art or articles or like speakers, um, online presences that speak to the queer, trans, um, and or uh, person of color conversations about sexual violence to just add to this important and necessary conversation. Um, feel free to, to add those to the comments on the post for this week because I think it's really important that we collect these diverse stories to have a full, complex conversation. Nice. That's it. Great, Radrack. Check it out. Let me destroy you. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life. Drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these Dom DeLuises this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be Dom DeLuise. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.